Well, next week, after quite a bit of time away through our study of Exodus and the Ten Commandments and uh, our time in October thinking about the, the five cries of the Reformation, uh, next Sunday we will finally return to the book of Romans and our verse-by-verse study of that book, and we will pick up in a very wonderful place, uh, Romans chapter 12, but not yet. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21? Revelation 21. And as you're turning there, I want to begin this morning, as I often do, with a question. Uh, and this question is specifically for those of us in here who, who are Christians. And here is the question. How often do you think about heaven? How often is heaven on your mind? How often do you experience a longing to be with your Savior in paradise? I've always found it interesting that Colossians 3, for example, tells us to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It doesn't just tell us to think about heaven. Uh, That verse doesn't just tell us to learn about heaven or to talk about heaven. In that verse, we're told to set our hearts on heaven. And specifically, on being with Jesus Christ himself. Uh, We are to be like the betrothed bride waiting for her groom to appear over the horizon coming to make her his wife and to take her into his house. I wonder, where is your heart set this morning? What is your heart's chief longing? I ask again, this time to both believers and unbelievers, how often do you think about heaven? Richard Baxter paraphrased a bit. If there really is such a certain and glorious rest ahead for God's saints, why are people not seeking it more eagerly? You would think that if a man heard just once of such unspeakable glory made available, and if he believed what he heard to be true, that he would be overcome by a strong desire to have it. His desire would be strong, so strong he would almost forget to eat and drink. He would care for nothing else. He would speak about and seek after nothing else except this, how to get this treasure, how to be sure that he is going to heaven. And yet people who hear of heaven daily and profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith do as little thinking about it or laboring for it As if they've never heard of it all, or as if they've never believed one word of it. C.S. Lewis famously said, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this one. And So over some of our next Lord's Supper Sundays, we are going to continue our time in Revelation, and specifically now thinking about heaven. 
But I hope we'll be doing more than that. I hope we will be fanning the flames of longing in our hearts. I pray that God would save any of us who right now are headed away from heaven to hell. And I pray that he would make us more eager to store up treasures in heaven. And to lead more people there. I want us to be a heavenly minded people. And I want us to be a heavenly hearted people. And So look with me at Revelation 21. Right here at the end of our Bibles. Next to last chapter. I want us to look at the first four verses. And then our focus will be verse 1. So look at Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. This is the very word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When you're reading the book of Revelation, and I hope that you do, I hope you're not kept away from this book by some of the strange pictures that it uses. Remember, Revelation is God-breathed scripture. It is profitable for your soul. Some of the most precious truths and promises in the whole Bible are found in this final book of the Bible. But when you're reading the book of Revelation, you should circle or underline or somehow note each time you see this phrase, then I saw. Do you see it there at the beginning of verse 1? Then I saw. Uh, Some people read Revelation in a way that I think is, is quite wrong. They read the book as if the whole book is moving along a timeline so that each picture... And each event follows chronologically after the one before it. But I don't think that's quite how this book works. Revelation is a vision. It's a revelation. It's a vision that John sees. But within that vision are at least seven visions. Uh, Have you ever had a dream where one moment you're in one place doing something... And then all of a sudden in your dream, you've, you're over here, a different place, different time, different, different people doing something else. You're still dreaming, but the scene has changed. I bet we could have an entertaining morning going around sharing some of the crazy dreams some of us have had in the past where just that kind of thing has happened. Unlike when we're awake... In our dreams, the setting can change in a flash. Who we're with, what we're seeing, what we're doing can change in a moment. Well, in this vision given to John by God himself, we see something very similar to that. 
And at least seven times, the vision has a massive change. Seven times, beginning in chapter 4, John seems to be given a picture to help Christians remember that God is sovereign over history, that spiritual warfare is happening in this world, that God's people must persevere in faith, And that ultimately Jesus Christ has won the victory and he will bring history to its glorious appointed end. And here is a key that I think will help the book of Revelation break open for you. All of these visions describe the period from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Each of these visions was given for the Christians in the first century and the Christians in the 10th century and the Christians in the 21st century. And they were given to help us understand what has been happening, what is happening, and what will happen. Each of these visions ends with the coming of Christ. Each of these visions ends with the day of judgment and Christ reigning in triumph. All seven of the visions tell the same story, but from a different perspective, using different, mostly Old Testament pictures and with different points of emphasis. So, for example, in the first vision, we have the Lord Jesus Christ opening seven seals. And when he finally opens the final seal, all we're told is this. Silence. That's what we're told about the end of the world right there. And then suddenly John says, then I saw, and the whole vision changes. And suddenly it's not seals anymore. Suddenly it's trumpets, right? And it's as if the whole cycle repeats again. The seventh trumpet is blown, and John hears a loud voice, and he sees 24 elders worshiping God in heaven because the day of his wrath, the day for the dead to be judged, has come. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's an earthquake, heavy hail, and then suddenly the scene changes, and the vision starts all over again, but this time with new pictures. Now, John doesn't signal every new vision with the words, then I saw, but he does signal most of them that way. And that's the case here in Revelation 21. And so what I've been saying is that beginning in Revelation 4, we have a vision which is actually seven smaller visions all telling the story of what happens between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. But that's not exactly right. Because this last vision This final vision, the vision happening right here in Revelation 21, has a different focus than the ones that came before it. The other visions told us increasingly a little bit more and a little bit more about the very end of all things. But this final vision is all about the very end. Its focus is less on what happens between the first and the second comings of Christ. The focus of this vision is what happens after the second coming. And particularly what happens at the very end. Among other things, this last vision includes the fullest picture, I think, in the whole Bible of the glories of the world to come. Now this morning, we're going to spend our few minutes together thinking about just one truth. From verse 1. 
And it's this. This world will pass away. This world will pass away. John says he sees a new heaven. He sees a new earth. And we wonder, what happened to the old heaven? (laughs) What happened to the old earth? And he tells us, he says, it had passed away. The word literally means to leave, to depart. Uh, This world, as we know it, is going to say goodbye. And it is going to be forever gone. So three questions to help us understand this truth that this world is passing away. Here we go. Number one, what will pass away? Will it be just the earth that passes away? Is it possible that when Jesus comes back in judgment that that it will be just this planet that passes away while the rest of the planets and the solar systems and the galaxies of our universe, those will remain the same? Have you ever wondered about that? What exactly is going to pass away at the very end? Well, someone might argue that it is just the earth that's going to pass away based on Revelation 20, verse 11. So look just a few verses earlier. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And so someone might argue, well, that verse says earth and sky. That's probably what? Maybe the earth and its atmosphere. And so maybe it will be just this planet that disappears. It will flee away. It will be gone at the coming of Christ, the day of judgment. And the rest of the universe will remain as it is. However, the scriptures seem to teach that it is actually, in fact, the entire universe that is going to pass away. Not just this earth. Every galaxy Every supernova, every black hole, the entire cosmos is going to pass away. Can you imagine? Can you wrap your brain around that? Two pieces of evidence. First, our verse, Revelation 21.1. It seems to be a redo of Genesis 1.1, doesn't it? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21.1, God makes a new heaven and a new earth for the first, the Genesis 1.1 heavens and earth, has passed away. Well, in Genesis 1.1, what does heaven and earth refer to? It refers to the entire universe. And so if Revelation 21.1 is a redo of Genesis 1.1, it also likely refers to the entire universe. Don't get distracted by the fact that Genesis 1.1 says heavens, plural, and earth. And Revelation 21.1 says heaven, singular. That would not be something to get caught up on. Because actually the word heavens in Genesis 1-1 can be translated either way. Plural or singular. And it's basically editor's choice. It's the same word whether you're Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew or Revelation 21-1 in Greek. It's the same phrase. So in Genesis 1-1, heavens and earth refers to the entire cosmos. And that makes me think in Revelation 21-1. 
it refers to the entire cosmos. But if you want more proof, how about 2 Peter chapter 3? Listen to these words. I'll just read them to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Listen to the scale of what is going to pass away. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you hear Peter using almost the exact same phrase as Revelation 21.1, a new heavens and a new earth, and they're going to replace these heavenly bodies that have been dissolved. This seems to be a passing away of the entire universe. There have been cataclysmic events in the history of mankind. There have been plagues that wiped out millions of people in a very short amount of time. There have been volcanic eruptions like Mount Vesuvius that that erupted and caught people by surprise and wiped out entire cities and their populations. There are hurricanes and tsunamis, earthquakes, even the dropping of nuclear bombs. These have created cataclysmic disasters. And the worst disaster that humankind has ever seen was the global flood that God sent during the days of Noah. But friends, there has never been an event like the one that's coming. There has never been an event like the one that's coming. The Old Testament prophets in the book of Revelation both use the language of stars falling from the sky. Revelation 6 gives us just a tiny glimpse. It describes the picture as heaven being rolled up like a scroll. What is passing away? The entire cosmos. Question two. Okay, when? When is this going to happen? I can give you two answers, and they're both correct biblically, I think. First, when Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back. For you see, the Bible links the coming of Jesus, the final judgment, and the passing away of heaven and earth all together. These seem to be three dominoes in a line. And when the first falls, so will the other two. I'm not going to speak at all dogmatically about timing, but the verses of Scripture seem to give the impression that these things are happening close together, that they're, they're bound up together. The coming of Jesus, the day of judgment, the passing away of the old heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth. So in Matthew, we have Jesus speaking on the Mount of Olives. And he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heavens. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now that that sounds pretty cataclysmic. Wouldn't you agree? 
That's a pretty dramatic description Jesus is giving. It sounds like the end of the world. Here's the very next verse. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus seems to connect the end of the universe with the day of His coming. He also connects this day with the day that all the tribes will mourn, which I take to be the day of final judgment. Unless we misunderstand, he further explains in Matthew 25 that on that day when he comes, all people will be gathered before him. He will separate them as sheep from goats. And so from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, we see that the end of this physical universe, the day of Christ's return, and the day of judgment are all described as being the same day. So when is heaven and earth going to pass away? When Jesus comes back. Or I can give you my second answer, which I think is also biblically true. Any day now. Any day now. It might still be 20,000 years away. I was walking with Benjamin... This week, and he said something about the year 9,999. I just thought to myself, there's no way this world will ever see the year 9,999. But you know, I don't know. I don't know. It could, it could be that far off. But it could also be this afternoon. We are not told the day or the hour. Both in the teaching of Jesus and then again in the apostles, even what we read a while ago in 2 Peter 3, Jesus said it will come like a thief in the night. Anyone who claims to know the day, anyone who claims to know the hour is deceived or lying. Jesus said himself that we will not know the day or the hour. But he said we are to be be ready. We're to be awake, we're to be alert, we're to be sober-minded, we're to be looking for the signs so that we're not called by surprise. We're to live our lives with one eye on the eastern sky, waiting, expecting. And then question three. Why is this world going to pass away? Why? And there are several true answers, but the one that our verse gives us is this. This world is passing away to make way for the new creation. The old creation was always intended in the plans of God to be temporary. It had an appointed end. There is a new creation coming. And that creation will be permanent. That creation will be eternal. So think about it this way. This is my favorite illustration to think about this. The old creation is the workshop in which God is forming and fashioning His people who will fill the new creation. In this world, the workshop, God is creating his redeemed people. He's not only having them born physically, but he's having them born again. He's bringing the gospel to them. He's he's bringing them into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. In this workshop called the old creation, this world right now, 
Jesus Christ is building his church, the people of the kingdom. But once the church is built, once the people of the kingdom, people from every age of history, people from every people group, the full number of Christ's bride, once they have been saved, the workshop is going to be torn down and the new creation is going to take its place. Once the purpose of the workshop has been fulfilled, it isn't needed anymore. Mount Hermon, everything in this universe, including the far reaches of unexplored space, has existed only to serve this purpose. The heavens declare the glory of God for this purpose, to prepare a new creation people for a new creation world. Everything in this world is passing away, except human souls and our human bodies that will be resurrected and glorified. No other material thing is going to last. Do you get that? People are the apex of God's creation. They were made in his image. They were made at the very end of the creation week as the climax of the creation week, as the climax of the creative genius of God. And all else was made because of God's plans for men. And now that God's plans for men in this world, once that purpose has reached its end, this world can disappear. The old creation can pass away. Because it is time for the bride of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of Christ to dwell with him in a new heavens, in a new earth. Two points of application before we come to the table very quickly. Number one, see the foolishness of living for the stuff of this world. Mount Hermon, is your heart set on things here below? Uh, Mount Hermon, could it be that your greatest treasures are things that are temporary? You know your bank account will not last. Your house and your vehicles will not last. Your prized possessions, your family mementos, your acres of land, they're all going to be dissolved in the end. Your positions in business, your worldly accomplishments, those championship trophies, those academic diplomas. What good are they going to do you in the end? None of those things are bad. Every one of those things has their proper place. And you should be grateful to God for every good thing that you have. But watch your heart. Don't let these things become more important and more precious to you than those things that are going to last, the things that are eternal. God forbid, could it be that you are rich on earth and poor in heaven? Are you storing up your treasures here and storing none there? Jesus taught, up to store our, taught us to store our treasures in heaven by being generous with all that he has given us. So our possessions, our finances, our time, our energy, our very lives are to be given to eternal causes. The love of God through the love of others. 
We're to use our bank account and our houses and our vehicles and our possessions and our lands and our positions and our accomplishments, all that we have to better honor God, to better enjoy God, to better serve God, to better share Him with the world. Which makes more sense? To be rich for five seconds and poor for a hundred years or to be poor for five seconds and rich for a hundred years. Friends, this life is the five seconds. And eternity is like a hundred years and way, way, way more than that. Don't live for the five seconds. Don't live to make the most of the five seconds. Live for the hundred years. Live for eternity. And then second, application. With that in mind, see the wisdom of striving to win souls. See the wisdom of striving to win souls. You say, Justin, this world is passing away. A new creation is coming. I want to live for eternity. I don't want to live for stuff that's passing away. I want to live for what's going to last. But Justin, what in this world is eternal? What can I live for right here, right now, that will last into the new creation? Answer, other people. Other people. Why do you think the Bible says so much to us about how we treat other people? It's because they matter way more than the other stuff in this world. Everything else is passing away. People are eternal. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. I love this one. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours is the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Every person you encounter has an eternal soul. Mount Hermon, if you want to do what honors God and has eternal consequences, love people. And in particular, love them by showing God to them. Love them by seeking to win them to Jesus Christ. Proverbs 11.30 says, Whoever wins souls is wise. Literally, and the ESV translates it this way, whoever captures souls is wise. This isn't capturing in a negative sense. This is the fishers of men dropping their nets and capturing souls in order to deliver them to safety. This is the fireman running into the burning house and running out with a saved life. If you want to do something of eternal value, live for the salvation of others. Live in such a way that you show others that God is worthy of their love, worthy of their trust, worthy of their faith. And do this by living a changed life. Do this by living in the peace and joy that you have in Jesus. Do this by walking in integrity in all of your relationships and your callings. But understand, actions alone are not enough. We must open our mouths. As God gives you the opportunity, boast about Jesus to others. Praise Him.
Let them know how good He is, what He has done for you, why you love Him so. Over Christmas, make sure your family knows you love Jesus and make sure they know why. Make sure they know what He's done for you. Store up treasures in heaven, in the new creation, in the world to come by using all that God has given you in this five seconds to encourage others to trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace and with His blessing, there will be some at the Lord's table in heaven, the table of the great wedding feast in the new heavens and the new earth, who will be there because of what God did through you. How many will be there because of what God has done through you? Are you longing not only for heaven, but to take others with you? Jesus came and died that we would be with him in the new creation world. Your place at this table this morning is his pledge that you have a place at that great table to come. As you take the bread, as you take the cup by faith, professing Jesus as your only hope of salvation, you are also receiving his assurance that you are his and will be his forever. And so you should come to this table with joy because this world is passing away, but we are not. And the promises of Jesus Christ are not either. And we will be with him in that new world forever. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment to pray.